But open up your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 2. We've been going through our study in the book of Romans. And today we have our uh, communion table before us. And so at the end of the service we'll be serving communion. And I just thought in preparation of that, it kind of ties in with what we're talking about in the, uh, the book of uh, Romans. Also be praying for um, Tom and Mary McCafferty. I think they headed back to uh, their, uh, her, her father's um, funeral. And so pray that God will give them a safe passage back there and back. And I know that that's kind of a trying time for them. And just pray that they would be blessed in their travels and have uh, words of comfort for the, the folks there at the, at the uh, memorial service as well. But today as we look at, um, we're in a little series in Romans here, going through the book of Romans, but we um, are speaking about God's righteous judgment. And today you hear a lot about God's love, but you don't hear a lot about God's wrath or his anger or his righteous judgment. And just way of review real quick, last week um, we looked at, began to look at God's judgment, his righteous judgment, and we, we saw that in chapter 2 he mentions the judgment of God in verse 2, 3, and 5. And then in verse 1 he refers to condemning yourself. Um, in verse 5 he talks about storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So this is a very prevalent subject matter that's on Paul's heart as he writes to this church here in Rome. And he wants them to understand that no one escapes the judgment of God. And last week we looked at the first uh, principle of God's judgment, and that was knowledge. And we, we also looked at if you don't repent of your self-righteous hypocrisy, you basically are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And the first one we looked at, the first principle we looked at last week was knowledge. And we saw last week that in verse 1, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, Romans 2, 1, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. So it's kind of an important thing that the first thing he mentions about there is the idea that we have to have a knowledge of the judgment of God, that we don't have any excuse. And we looked at the fact that God reveals himself through a variety of ways. First of all, he reveals himself through natural revelation. You just go out and you look at the beautiful flowers and you look at the ocean and you look at the Grand Canyon or you go up to Yosemite. You can't help but understand that someone made this. This didn't just happen. And it's God the Creator who did. And he talks about that in Romans 1. You're without excuse, he says. All you have to do is look at the, the human body. Look at the eye alone. What makes it work? You know, if you want to believe that it's just a result of, you know, some mud getting together and getting friendly and stopping up on the shore and becoming a tadpole and then a frog and then eventually an ape and then a human being, well, God bless you. But that takes a lot more faith than saying, in the beginning, God created. And so that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created all this, and that is a way of him revealing himself to us. 
And then secondly, in verse 14, he talks about, in, verse, in chapter 2, he talks about having a conscience. He says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, remember the Jews were the ones who God entrusted his law to. And he gave them the law for the purpose of what? To spread it around, right? Well, they didn't do that. They took it and they said, hey, we're God's chosen people and this is for us. And they took it and they hoarded it. And then they realized, well, we can't really keep the law because it's kind of difficult. So we're going to invent our own law. So they came up with all kind of crazy laws. That's why whenever you read through the New Testament and you're coming across Jesus and he's dealing with the Pharisees, what does he say? You have heard it taught or you have heard it said but i tell you what was he doing he was taking god's word and he was re-clarifying what it was because they distorted it so badly but in verse 14 there it says for when the gentiles who don't have the law because they weren't willing to give it to them because there's this big line of separation by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law What's he saying? You can go to anywhere in the world, any remote tribe, they never heard of God. And you can ask them, is it okay for your neighbor to come over and, and steal something in your house? What will they say? No. Inevitably, that's what they'll say. Is it okay for your, your neighbor to come over and, and sleep with your wife or whoever your mate is here? No. Why? Because God put that in their heart. There's a conscience that he's given, he's revealed himself through natural revelation, he's revealed himself through our conscience that he's given us. And then also, he's given us knowledge through the law of God. And it talks about that in Romans 3. We'll get to that when we get to that. But the first basis of God's righteous judgment is, the first principle is that it's based on knowledge. It's based on the idea that, you know what, you're held accountable for what you know. And we look last week at a lot of times you're prone to self-righteously judge others for the very same sins that we commit. We all do that. We look down our spiritual nose at somebody else doing something and we say, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. But you know what? If the truth be told, we do the same thing sometimes. And so... In the general church, and in a lot of churches, you know, when you confront someone over their sin, you point out to a brother or sister in Christ, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This isn't good. Sometimes they'll shoot back, well, judge not lest you be judged. You ever hear that? And that's, that's a misapplication of that. Because we're called to judge. But we're to do it in love. We're to do it without hypocrisy. And we looked at last week, self-righteous people make two fatal mistakes. They misunderstand the high view of God's law. And they also misunderstand the depth of their sin. They fail to understand that, you know what, God's law is way up here and God's law was never meant to be kept. Do you understand that? God didn't say, hey, if you just keep these Ten Commandments, we focus on the Ten Commandments. There's hundreds of commandments. But if you just take the Ten Commandments alone, how many of you can say, I've always kept the Ten Commandments? I've never lied. Well, i got my sister and brother-in-law here, so I can't raise my hand to that one. They know me, but too good. Okay? Well, I've never taken anything that wasn't mine. No? Never thought a lustful thought. No? 
Okay? We've broken the Ten Commandments ten times over and over. We do it every day. And so we can't believe that God gave his law in order that some people could keep it, and by keeping the law, they would obtain salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God gave us his law so that it would drive us to the Savior. Because when we look at the law of God, we would say, who could do this, right? Nobody. There's only one person that ever existed on this earth that kept perfectly the law of God, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was God. Nobody has ever kept it. I don't care if you're a priest, a pope, a pastor, whatever. You haven't kept it. That's why we need a Savior. And so they misunderstand the height of God's law. The Jews thought, oh, well, we're just going to keep, we'll we'll take the law of God, and we're going to kind of demean it down to something that we can keep. So when he says keep the Sabbath, that means, you know, you can't pick up a stick more than 18 inches long and carry it more than 50 feet. If you do that, that's work. Then you're breaking the Sabbath. But you can do it otherwise. And they made up all these rules and regulations. They were just ridiculous. And it became a burden to the people. And then they would dress themselves up in their robes and go out in the street and and act self-righteously. And so when Jesus confronted them time and time again, he didn't have good words to say to them. Because they were self-righteous folks. And a lot of times, self-righteous people do just that. They condemn others for the same sins that they commit. Self-righteous hypocrites judge the sins of others while overlooking their own sins. A self-righteous hypocrite judges others based on selective standards, not on God's word. A self-righteous hypocrite is more concerned about external conformity than true inner godliness. A self-righteous hypocrite is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following. That, were the Jews of, that was the Jews of Jesus' day. That's why they, they hung him on a cross. Because they were ticked off because he got a bigger crowd than they did eventually. They didn't like that. He was threatening their, their whole religious machine. And lastly, we looked at a self-righteous hypocrite who justifies himself by comparing himself with others or blaming others for his own sins. Well, today I want us to look at the second principle here, but I want you to understand that self-righteous hypocrisy brings you under the judgment of God. And let's read our text for us. I'll just read it for you. You can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that somehow you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? But because of your hand, an impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
we see here very clearly that eventually self-righteous hypocrisy brings you under the judgment of God. That verse 2 there literally reads, reads, the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. It means, you know what it means? It means that God's judgment against sin is fully lining up with the facts. See, Paul's hypothetical Jewish reader here that he may have been addressing would have agreed that God's judgment is according to truth. They would say amen, Paul, to that. They would agree with that. Where they would have disagreed with Paul is that God's righteous judgment falls on the Jews just as it does on the Gentiles. They would have a problem with that. Because the Jews basically claimed that they had special status before God because they were his covenant people. They were the chosen people of God. And they believed that if you were a Jew and you lived there in Israel, you were treated as if you kept all of the commandments and you were guaranteed life to come just because you were Jewish. That's what they thought. And what Paul was trying to explain to them, Paul applies God's just judgment both to the Jew and to the Gentile. And he was a Jew. And so he says, if you judge others for the very same sins that you are committing, you're guilty in God's court of justice. See, Paul isn't pointing to God's revealed law as the standard for judgment, although he could have. Rather, he's saying that if a self-righteous person judges someone else for a sin that he himself is practicing, he will not escape the judgment of God. If you condemn someone for lying to you, but you continue to lie to everybody else, you've just condemned yourself. You've acknowledged that you know lying is wrong. Not based upon your lying, but based upon you judging somebody else for lying. If you get all over someone who's taken something from you, it's not theirs, but then you cheat the government on your taxes... Well, that's stealing. See, Paul is not saying that you'd escape God's judgment if you lie or, or you, you, know, you, you, you steal without judging others for those sins. He's not saying that. Rather, he's, he's showing us that all of us have violated our own standard by doing the very things that we condemn others for doing. And so we're guilty before God. And so we see the second principle here. Last week we looked at the idea that God judges based on the principle of knowledge. He's given us knowledge. But the second principle here today, quickly, is truth. God's righteous judgment. And we see it in verses 2 and 3. He says, but we are sure, Paul says this, that the judgment of God is according to truth against them who commit such things. That's so important For us to understand that, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What are those things that he's talking about? He's talking about the same things in chapter 1. We're not going to go back and list them all, but you can go through there and you can see what God's righteous judgment is against. He lists a whole bunch of 
different sins. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. But for the most part, it covers every aspect of life. And what he's saying is the same things that are in chapter 1 are the same things that are in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, we know this to be true. We know there in verse 2. In other words, it's, it's obvious to everybody. It's known by external facts. It's an obvious basic principle that the judgment of God is going to be according to the what? The truth. God isn't going to judge us based on lies. He's going to base us, judge us based on the truth. How do I know that? Because God can't lie. (laughs) Right? I mean, he can't do that. And God is of truth. That's his nature. In Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Let God be true, but what? Every man a liar. In other words, don't you dare go to God and say, God, you're lying. No. Even though maybe in our mind it doesn't logically add up to what we're seeing before us or or whatever it might be, God cannot lie. He will judge everything according to truth. In Romans chapter 9, verse 14, it says, Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul asked the question. Do you think that there's any unrighteousness with God? And he says, God forbid. (laughs) In other words, the answer is absolutely not. We serve a perfect, holy God. And you can go back into the Old Testament and look at some of those scriptures that are listed, and you see it over and over and over again. The truthfulness of God is in his nature. That's who he is. What did Jesus say when he was here on earth? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Psalm 9.4 says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. See, there's no way anybody's going to stand before God one day when they're accused of their sins. And if they haven't gone to Christ for forgiveness, they're going to stand before a holy God. There's no way somebody can say, hey, wait a minute, God, that's not fair. No, 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 I didn't know. Yeah, you did. (laughs) I revealed myself to you in, in myriads of ways. But you rejected it. Therefore, my righteous judgment against you is just. Psalm 9.8 says, He judges the world with righteousness. Psalm 96, verse 13 says, Sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. Listen to this. He will judge the world in righteousness. See, our God is a righteous God. He's a holy God. God will judge according to the truth. The problem is a lot of times we have a distorted perception of the truth as human beings, right? But there's no distortion in God's perception. He sees everything just the way it is. Nobody is exempt. God is going to look at it. He's going to see what is the truth. And God is going to judge on that basis. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. That has to do with his works of judgment as well as any other works. We have to believe, beloved, that our God does no wrong. 
If he does wrong, then he's just like you and I. Why are we even here? But if he's holy, if he's perfect, if he doesn't make wrong evaluations, if there's no distortion in his judgment, then we know that it's perfect, that it's true, and we can put our faith and trust in it. See, there's something within us, right, when some, somebody points out something in our life that's wrong. Maybe we did something wrong, maybe we treated somebody badly, whatever, and they come to us and they point it out. What's the first thing we want to do? Defend, right? We want to defend, we want to justify ourselves. That's just the human heart. That's just who we are. That's at the core of who we are. And we want to basically try to exonerate ourselves of any wrongdoing. And so when someone comes to us and they say, you know, hey, you're going to be a held account one day for the sins that you've committed. Do you understand that? Do you understand that one day you're going to stand before a holy God and he's going to hold you accountable for the sins that you've committed through your life? I've told that to people, and they say, oh, God wouldn't do that. I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. You're a good person? Yeah. Come on. I mean, you know, I, I work hard. I provide for my family. I, I, I'm faithful to my wife. I raise my kids. We even go to church. I'm a good person. And I'm sure in the end, when God looks at my, all my good works piled up here, and maybe some of the bad things, yeah, I guess maybe I've done some bad things, but you know, for the most part, I'm a good, I'm a good guy. See, that's, that's what I believed before I came to Christ. I remember the night the pastor was sharing Christ with me. I was out of my brother Bob's house, and we were sitting there over dinner, and all of a sudden everybody was, nobody was there around the dinner table except me and the pastor. And he kept on pointing out to me, verse in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I kept on saying, I understand. My brother Bob, he's an alcoholic, for goodness sakes. Yeah, he's a sinner. Paul, I mean, yeah, he's just, you know, he's raised all kinds of problems in our, our town when he was growing up. So, yeah, he needs this. But, I mean, I, I'm a pretty good kid. Why do I need to do this? And he just kept on going back, going back, going back, saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does all mean? All means all. And finally, it was like God just pierced my heart and showed me, wait a minute, you're not goody two-shoes here. Who do you think you are? You've sinned just like everybody else. And you need the grace of God just like everybody else. Because the wages of sin is death. The Bible clearly teaches that. Spiritual death. Separation from God for eternity. Do you know that every time you sin, God has the perfect right just to snuff you out? (laughs) He would be totally justified in doing that. He actually did that in the New Testament. Right? You read about these stories in the New Testament church. One couple, they came in and said they sold some land and gave all the money to the Lord. And they were lying about it. (laughs) What happened? Boom! It fell dead right there before everybody. And see, I think today we, we forget that, that that's, that's just judgment. We rely too much on, on God's mercy. And because we rely on God's mercy, which we need to, 
But we take it for granted. And I think we even at points abuse it. And even at points, even as Christians, we begin to kind of dabble with little sins here and there, thinking, oh, it's not going to hurt anybody. After all, I mean, God's a gracious God. (laughs) He's not going to do anything to me. It'll be all right. So we take advantage of God. We take advantage of God's grace. We distort the perspective. Look over at at 1 Corinthians. Just quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because Paul brought this point up to this church. And this church had a lot of issues. Okay, They They had all sorts of crazy stuff going on in their church. And Paul had to address it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3... He says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Remember Paul. I mean, he was an apostle. The Bible calls him apostle born out of what? Due time, right? So he wasn't necessarily there with, with Jesus and all that. He, Jesus came back and made a special visit for Paul on the road to Damascus. And he became an apostle. He became a follower of Christ. So a lot of people questioned his credentials. A lot of people thought, well, yeah, we, you know... The original guys, but who are you, Paul? Wait a minute. Didn't you used to kill these Christians? You know, I mean, that's, that's what he used to do when he was Saul. And so he says, you know what? It doesn't really bother me that I'm judged by you or even by any human court. Wow. And he says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Hmm. That's an interesting statement. But he goes on and he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself. And he says, It is the Lord who judges me, right? It's the Lord who judges me. Verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Because when he comes, he's going to bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Man's judgment doesn't square with the facts all the time. Have you ever judged somebody for something only to find out that your judgment was wrong? (laughs) I have. Sometimes you question somebody's motives or you make a judgment on somebody and lo and behold, you know, they really meant, meant good by what they said or what they did and you took it the wrong way or... Sometimes we get things, perspectives messed up. But God doesn't do that. His perspective is always true. The problem with the hypocrite, the problem with the the self-moralistic person is they think they're okay. And they think they're okay because he's judging himself by himself. (laughs) I saw a, a thing last night. I was watching the presidential news thing with the uh, all the the news broadcasters you know and they have a comedian and all that stuff I was watching part of that and one segment the comedian was talking about a politician who closed a certain bridge <laughs> back in New Jersey and uh, how he kind of came to the conclusion that he didn't do anything wrong and he, this this comedian was saying yeah you know so this this politician basically said that he was going to 
put in, 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 uh, in, in order this, this uh, committee that consisted of himself and that he was going to judge himself. And, and in the end, he found that everything was okay. And it was kind of a, you know, a comedic act. But that's what this is saying. It's saying, you know what, you can't really judge yourself. You're biased. You really are. That's why in the body of Christ, when we see something in somebody else's life, we need to have the ability and the freedom to go up to that brother or sister and say, hey, you know, I don't know if you see this, or I don't know if you know this. I mean, people have done that to me over the years. And I've really welcomed them for it, because sometimes I don't even realize it. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, if you're trying to have a conversation with me before the service, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm just, I'm kind of zeroed in on what I have to do, you know, and you can say whatever you want. And for the most part, I mean, I'm going to hear it, but I'm really not going to hear it. And sometimes I've had to stop myself and say, what am I doing? I need to slow down. I need to relax a little bit, take some extra time, really hear people's hearts. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 The writer of Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all, listen to this, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Wow. He sees everything. Sometimes people get upset, they go on an airplane, and you got to go through there, and you know, you go through the thing, you put your hands up, and oh, I don't want to do that. You know, they're, they're looking at my body. But they're not really concerned what God sees in their life. Sometimes he sees everything. Does that put us in a vulnerable place? Do you realize that every sin you've ever committed, you might as well have committed it right in front of God himself? That's true. He sees it. Even though maybe others don't. Every evil thought that we've ever thought, every evil word that's ever been spoken out of our lips, every evil deed that's ever been done has been done in the full presence of a holy God. And you know what he thinks of your sin? You know what he thinks of my sin? He hates it. He hates it. And we keep doing it. Have you ever told somebody, please don't do that again? That really bugs me when you do that. And they keep doing it. Eventually you get angry. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, if we know we're exposed to God and he sees everything that's in the dark recesses of our hearts in our lives, we can't hide anything from him. Then we better run to the one, the only one who can mediate on our behalf before that God. 
The only person I know that can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor can't do it, a priest can't do it, a pope can't do it. God's judgment is not predicated on outward appearance. It's not predicated on somebody's profession. It's predicated on real truth. See, the hope of the hypocrite is that God will judge him by something other than the truth. That's what they believe. That's the hypocritical hope, you might say. Uh, If you're sitting in this church and you've never really given your heart to God and you've never come to Christ for forgiveness of sin, you're just kind of playing a religious game and you want to act religious and make people think you're religious, you're just part of that whole system. And your basic hope is that eventually the judgment isn't going to be judged on truth, it's just going to be judged on what's perceived. A hypocrite doesn't want to be judged by the reality of what he is. He wants to hide behind, in the case of the Jews in Paul's day, maybe his national identity, or maybe his church membership, or maybe his baptism, or maybe the way he keeps all the rules, or his own morality, or the fact that maybe he's a good guy. We know the verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, man looks on the outward appearance, right? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart. At the heart. And that's so, so important for us to realize that. Because it's the heart that really matters to God. It's not whether you come to church. It's not whether you join the church or whether you're baptized. or All that's irrelevant. Our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. That's what the Bible says. And so how do we apply this message of truth? Well, he does it in verse 3 for us. He says in verse 3, Do you suppose, do you think, Oh man, he's kind of just addressing everybody there. Jew, Gentile, anybody that thinks he's too good for God. Do you suppose you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? You know what he's saying? Paul's saying, do you think you're really going to get away with this? Do you really think that you're going to get away with this? God judges on the basis of truth on the basis of your knowledge, on the basis of your knowledge because you judge others on that knowledge. And God knows you do the same things that you judge the others for doing. And somehow you think you're going to escape his judgment? I mean, that's really going after our conscience. The moralist And the Jews think that somehow they're going to escape the judgment of God. I'm sure there are people here today, even in our church, think somehow you're going to escape the judgment of God. It doesn't matter what kind of church you go to. That's irrelevant. They may sit in judgment on immoral people in the world. I see it all the time with religious people. 
And yet, their heart is filled with the same stuff they're judging the others. Jesus called people like that white sepulchers on the outside, but inside, they're full of what? Dead man bones. That's what he referred to the religious leaders of his day. So he says here, do you suppose or do you think that word there is really the word that means to calculate? Have you really honestly sat down and calculated what you're doing? Do you really think you're going to get away with this? Because when it becomes obvious to God that you must know the rules because you're condemning others, you're going to be judged by those same rules. Dr. Barnhouse, great commentator, he writes this in one of his commentaries. He kind of translates this verse this way. He says, this is my translation. You dummy! (laughs) Do you really figure that you have doped out an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it? You don't have a ghost of a chance. There's no escape. Do you understand that? No escape. This means you, yes, you, the respectable person sitting in judgment on others and remaining unrepentant to yourself for the evil in your heart. You dummy. (laughs) You won't escape. The indictment falls on all of us. That little phrase there, you will, you think that you will escape, or translation, some translations say you will not escape. It tells us three things about the hypocrite or the, the self-righteous person. First of all, that he cannot avoid being char- judged. Nobody is going to avoid being judged before God. Not, not one person. I don't care who you are. Secondly, when you are judged, you will not be able to avoid being condemned. Because we're all guilty before a holy God. And number three, when you are condemned, you will not be able to avoid being executed. See, this isn't like our legal system. You know, you see some of these criminals, they, yeah, okay, I did it, I did it, I did it. And then, you know, 20 years later, they're still on death row or something. No, it's not going to work that way with God. One of the early Christian writers wrote this, he cannot escape by his own judgment How can he escape the judgment of God? If forced to condemn ourselves, how much more will the infinitely holy condemn us? We stand before God condemned. What are the implications of this? 1 John 3, verse 20 tell us. It says, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. You're not hiding anything from God. I mean, if our own conscience is condemning ourselves when we do something wrong, don't you imagine that God is condemning that? I mean, think of your conscience kind of like pain. You know, pain is, is a gift from God. It's there to let you know that, you know what, you need to stop what you're doing with your body because it's in pain. Yesterday, I was made a baked potato in the microwave oven. And it was probably too big of a baked potato to make in the microwave oven. It was one of these big honking potatoes, you know. So I wrapped it up, threw it in there. Five minutes, came back, still hard. Another five minutes. That thing cooked in there for like 20 minutes, I think. 
It was still kind of hard on the inside. That's how big this potato was. And every time I'd grab it, because, you know, I had a, like a paper towel, wet paper towel wrapped around it, I'd grab it and pull it out and kind of poke it up, put it back in. So finally, after 20 minutes in exhaustion, I just figured, you know what, this has got to be done. If it's not, I'll just eat it raw on the inside. I don't care. And I went and I opened up the microwave oven. You know what I did? I grabbed the plate. <sighs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what am I doing? Because I'd been grabbing the potato, and I'd say, oh, I'll just grab the plate. It won't be hot. Well, it was. It was Matter of fact, something was smelling in the, in the house, and I think it was a ceramic plate ready to explode. I microwaved it so much. And that thing just, you know, wow. I mean, if I had no pain, what would I do? My flesh would be burning, right? I wouldn't be playing the piano this morning. I may not even be here this morning. It was because of pain that I quickly moved my hand away and just got a little burn. It wasn't too bad. That's what conscience is to our, our mind. It does the same thing pain does in the spiritual dimension. And if our conscience lets us know that we're wrong, that we're evil, that they're doing things that are not in accord with God's law, can you imagine how God must feel? So what he's saying in verse 3, basically, is do you think of all people who know God's law and condemn it in others, do you think that you can break God's law? In misjudgment? The answer is obviously no. I want you to know that this morning, as we come to our communion table, you may be asking yourself, well, <laughs> that's kind of a serious message you just preached. I mean, it doesn't sound like there's any hope for anybody if, if basically everybody's a sinner and everybody's going to be judged. I mean, what's the use, right? And you'll be based on the, judged on the basis of truth. You'll be based on, judged on the basis of your knowledge. So if you look in your heart this morning, as you sit here and you see that your heart isn't right with God, and you know the truth, and you know that God knows the truth. Maybe you're playing religious games with him. You know that God sees it all. And when God sees it all, the judgment will be eternal place called hell. It's a very real place. It's not make-believe. Well, how do you escape that? That may be the question you have. And there's only one place, and that's to run to Jesus Christ. Because, see, Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for our sin. He's already received the judgment of God fully upon himself. I just want to close with this little story I read this past week. And I think it paints a perfect picture as we prepare our hearts for our communion time. When earlier in, in Russian time, there was actually tribes of, of people, much like the Indians roamed our Americas early on. And these tribes were uh, controlled, basically, by the best hunting and the, the choicest natural resources. And so the, the tribes that had the, the strongest and the widest, wisest leaders, they would be able to go to these choice places. 
And the single tribe which controlled the very best of the territory was the tribe with the most powerful and the wisest leader. One particular tribe maintained its control of the choice land because its leader was not only the most physically powerful, but he was the wisest of all the leaders. And the success of the tribe was due to the fairness and the equity and the wisdom of the laws this great leader gave and enforced upon his people. And his word was law. There's no doubt about it. And amongst his greatest laws were that parents must be loved and they must be honored. Something our society could learn from. He also said that murder was punishable by death. Stealing was severely punished. Well, the tribe was prospering greatly when suddenly something disturbing happened within the tribe. Someone in the tribe was stealing. It was reported to the great leader that this was going on, and he sent out a proclamation that if the thief was caught, he would receive a very severe punishment. Ten lashes from the tribal master, the whipmaster. Stealing continued despite the warnings. So he made another proclamation and he raised to 20 lashes. If you're caught, 20 lashes. It went on, so he raised it to 30 lashes. Finally, he raised it to 40 lashes. And he knew there was only one person in the whole tribe that could even ever survive such a beating. And that was him, the leader. Because he was the superior one in strength. Well, some time passed and finally the thief was caught. And to the horror of everyone, it was the tribal leader's own mother. The tribe was in shock. What was the leader going to do? His law was that in everything, parents would be loved and honored. But thieves were to be whipped. He already made the proclamation, 40 lashes. And the tribal leaders would, elders would get together and they would discuss this. And they were divided over what to do. Should he follow his law of love for his parents? Or should he follow the law of justice? Finally, the day came, and this frail little mother was brought out into the courtyard between these two towering warriors. She was tied to a post, and the crowd that gathered began to ask the question silently, will he satisfy his love at the expense of law, or his law at the expense of love? The tribal whipmaster entered, a very powerful man, bulging muscles. A great leather whip was held in his hand as he approached the little lady. lady the, the warriors ripped her shirt off, exposing her frail little back to the cruelty of the lash. The whole crowd gasped. Was the leader really going to let his own mother die? He sat staring in his chair without moving. Every eye was darting from him to the whipmaster and back again. The whipmaster took his stance 
and his great arm cracked the whip up in the air as he prepared to bring the first lash down upon her frail little back. In every heart was the question, would he allow his love to be violated or his law? Just as the whipmaster started to bring his powerful arm forward, with the first cutting stroke on that frail little back of that lady, the leader held up his hand to halt the punishment. And a great sigh went out over the tribe, and his, they realized, oh, his love is going to be satisfied. But what about his law? He already made the proclamation. And they watched him rise up from his throne. And he walked over toward his mother. And as he walked, he removed his own shirt. And he threw it aside. And he proceeded to wrap his great arms around his mother from behind. And he exposed his huge muscular back to the whipmaster. And breaking the heavy silence of the audience, he commanded, proceed with the punishment. See, both his law and his love were satisfied that day. What does the Bible say about the wages of sin? The, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says that Jesus died for our sins. He satisfied his love. He died in our place. But he also satisfied his law. He died for sin. And I want you to know this morning, if you come to Christ, the judgment you should receive, Christ takes in your place, on your behalf. What an incredible gift that we have, our salvation through Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. We pray now you prepare our hearts for our communion time. Father, I pray if there's any here who has yet to cry out to you for salvation. Lord, maybe we have people here that are trusting in their own good works. They're trusting in their religiosity. They're trusting in their own wisdom. Lord, nothing escapes your, your eye. We all stand naked before you. You see things that nobody sees. And we know when the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in our hearts we know that we've done that. So what's the answer? The answer is run to Christ. Cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me my need of a Savior. Help me to put my faith, my trust in Christ, in Christ alone. As believers, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this table, it says that we shouldn't come to this table without examining first our own heart. And so, Father, we do that even now in the quietness of this moment. There's something hindering our relationship with you, Lord. We need to confess that. The Bible says if we're, we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Father, we pray that you would allow our hearts to be pure for this moment, right before you. We thank you. Ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.